The name of tonight's talk is Torment of the Judging Mind. And the title came from one of my own retreats. And it was a retreat that there was close encounters with the judging mind and the torment that comes from us, comes from it. And I know that this is not something unique to my mind that the judging mind is something that many of us struggle with. Um, So tonight, looking at this aspect of experience so that hopefully we can find a way of relating to it that has wisdom, a way of including this aspect of experience that comes up over and over again, that we can find a way of being at peace and ease with this experience. We find that judgment arises in many different ways. As we sit here, it's common that we will judge our fellow yogis. We will judge them by the way that they sit, the way that they walk, the way that they eat, how long someone sits, how much they eat. I was uh, on retreat one time over at the retreat center. And at one point, I was sitting in the main foyer where people were coming in and going out. And as I was sitting there, I was sitting with my eyes downcast. And then at some point, I noticed, as people would come in, there would be a spark of interest. Now, I wouldn't directly look at the person, but maybe looking at their feet. And the interest would be there until some judgment could be made. And then the interest would disappear. That somewhere in this process, there was this continual tendency to make comparative values, comparative judgments with others. On retreat, we might also find that there is judgment of self, a continual evaluation, analysis of how we're doing, what we're doing, Sometimes it might take on the tone of voice from our mother, our father, from past conditioning that we have. It can also happen on retreat that we become very aware of how we are perceiving others as judging us. That we are constantly filtering our experience through what we think others are seeing in us, whether it's our fellow yogis, whether it is our teachers. And so we keep judging our experience through some assumption or belief of what another may be projecting onto us. And this can become very uh, painful. You know, we can find that we're defending ourselves against thoughts that we think someone else is having about us. 
And, you know, I've seen it happen in my own mind where, you know, walking past someone and thinking that they're judging me for the way I'm walking and suddenly I'm caught in this dialogue of defense where I'm really defending this self. We begin to, out of this, see how much attachment we can have to our self-image and how painful of that that can be. We can find judgment arising in relationship to the order of things, that in being in the center, we might be making judgments about the food, the running of the kitchen, the running of the office. We might be constantly redecorating this place in a better way. Or we might even be redefining how practice should happen here. There's really no end to the ways that judgment can arise in our experience. And, you know, I've just cited examples that we find on retreat. At home, in our lives, endless ways that we judge. Here on retreat, one of the benefits is that we may become aware of this tendency of the mind to continually judge. What can happen at home is that there's still this same tendency, but we just live believing that all of these judgments are true and then make decisions based upon these judgments. A really good place in daily life to see the tendency to judge is when we meet somebody and have a first impression of someone. We will find that if that impression is pleasant, there can be then, you know, the feeling that we like this person. We want to get to know this person better. But if in that first impression something arises that there's disliking, there can be a wanting to distance. We can become very dismissive of that person. And sometimes in our lives, life will take us to a deeper level than that first impression. You know, maybe in the workplace, we find that whether we like it or not, that person is a part of our lives now. And we get to know that person on a deeper level. And we begin to see that this first impression really had no truth in it. That it was just based upon assumptions in the mind, based upon very fleeting impressions, and there was really very little value in it. It was really based upon fabrications of mind. And this is something to know about <coughs> excuse me, the judging mind that it's not often a faculty of wise discernment. It's not often a reflection of the way things are. That what happens, <coughs> excuse me, is that we can have thoughts arise in the mind that are 
based upon conditioning, based upon beliefs. Our conditioning can be based upon uh, things that we may have heard from our parents, things we may have heard from our peers. It can be based upon cultural values, all based upon perceptions that are not a reflection of how things actually are. And yet, when we pay attention, we see the tendency to believe these thoughts as if they are true. And out of these judgments, we will often find that we construct a sense of self that is better than someone else, worse than, or equal to. And this comparing mind is a recipe for suffering. Our tendency to judge others. We look at someone else's experience and think that we can ascribe a value to it. And yet, we don't really know what's happening for that person. Now, as we're sitting here, we may have fellow yogis that we judge to be good yogis. And that might be because in the past, we heard some description of practice, and that person appears to be practicing in that way. Maybe we heard that it's very helpful to move really slowly, to walk slowly, to eat slowly. And so we see someone doing that. And our judging mind might say, hmm, good yogi. And yet that person's internal experience may be that they are holding fixedly to some idea, to some concept, that they are getting very tight and rigid within that experience. But we can't tell that from looking. It's not apparent. We might also see someone whom appears to be in a lot of pain, that there looks to be deep sadness. Maybe there is crying. And we think, Puh, they don't have much balance. They don't have much equanimity. And yet, within their experience, they may be touching in deeply to the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. I'd like to share a story that um, comes from a sutta. There was once a woman named, named Migasala, and she went to Ananda because she was very puzzled by something the Buddha had said. Her father had recently died, and in the latter years of his life, he had been celibate. 
and he lived a very simple life, remote from sensuality. After he died, the Buddha said that he had, um, that he was a once returner, meaning that he had reached the second stage of enlightenment. And then this woman also at that time, her, I guess it would be her uncle was to die. And her uncle had lived a different life. He was not celibate and he had lived contented, a contented married life. And when he died, the Buddha also said that he too was a once returner. And she was confused by this because she believed her father was living a higher life, a more purified life. And so she went to Ananda and questioned him. Ananda went to the Buddha to ask him about this. And the Buddha responded by describing six types of people. And I'm not going to go into all of the six types of people that he described, but just to say that they were broken up into matching pairs. Matching pairs on one level where he would describe uh, two different types of people who were gentle and pleasant. And yet one person would be gentle and pleasant, and yet there was still strong ignorance in their life. There was not a lot of understanding. And the other person, he said, would be gentle and pleasant, yet they would have keen understanding, and that they had much learning, and they had attained temporary liberation of mind. And then he described another uh, set of people as being uh, people that had a lot of anger and pride. And again, one would be ignorant, and then the other would have understanding and had uh, attained temporary liberation of mind. And he said to Ananda, he said that only the Buddha, or a fully awakened one, would be able to perceive the difference. And so he said, therefore, Ananda, you should not be a hasty critic of others. You should not lightly pass judgment on people. One who passes judgment on people harms themselves. It's so easy for us to get caught up in judging others by, you know, values we've taken on, we've heard about, you know, can be spiritual values. And we can't see into another's experience. And the painful part is that we so often overlook the harm that comes from this judging mind. We don't feel what's happening. We don't feel the constriction of self. We don't feel the separation. We don't feel how we become dismissive, disparaging of others. In fact, we often get uh, 
a sense that the judging mind can have a sense of protection. Now this is when it's not clearly seen. It can be a moment where aversion arises in relation to unpleasant experience. And rather than opening to that, we move into blaming, making somebody else responsible for the unpleasantness, and therefore not opening to the pain that is present. We become righteous, indignant, puffed up, inflated. We don't see the pain that is there. We don't see how we've moved into a place of self-referencing that is small, separate, isolated. We don't see the dukkha that is present. I practiced for many years before I saw in my own experience how pervasive this judging mind could be. Because, you know, it can just be just this little comment, commentary, that happens. An experience happens, judgment follows. Another experience happens, judgment follows. I didn't give it much credence, you know, and it was as if turning away each time that it arose, as if it didn't matter that it was there. But it was a way of stuffing the experience. It was a way of pushing it down. And it didn't work. Judgment was destabilizing to the mind. It had power in the mind. The relationship needed to shift. It needed to be included. It needed to be seen. Needed to be understood. There was also another time where I experienced kind of a great relief from the experience of judging others. I went on a self-retreat, and for five weeks I didn't see anybody. And at the end of the retreat, I really recognized that there had been a huge relief from this bombardment that can happen of the continually comparing oneself to another. And just the sense of relief that came from that. But that's only a temporary means of relief. Now we can't you know, protect ourselves from the judging mind by going and living in a cave. I mean, we could, but it's not going to lead us to the liberation from that state. The liberation is going to come through understanding, inclusiveness. So taking a look at this judging mind, As we do, we see that central to the judging mind is I am, the conceit 
of I am. We find that this conceit is an imagination not based on reality. I'd like to uh, share a teaching from the Abhidhamma. It's from the Comprehensive Manual of the Abhidhamma. Uh, it's edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And it, here he gives a description of conceit as it's kind of categorized. Uh, I'll, I'll share it first and then just give a little comment about it. So this is a definition of conceit, the conceit of I am. Conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness. Its function is self-exaltation. It is manifested as a saving glory. Its proximate cause is greed dissociated from views. It should be regarded as madness. The first part of it, to me, was no, no surprise. Haughtiness, self-exaltation, saving glory, greed dissociated from views. Now, this all was something I could imagine about conceit. Made sense. What really struck me when I read this definition was it should be regarded as madness. I found that really potent. When I think of somebody who's schizophrenic, when I think of somebody who suffers from psychosis, my heart goes out to them. To know the mind that suffers in that way. That where, you know, bearings of reality are lost. But then to think of something that has been so prevalent in my own experience, conceit, as madness, was like, whoa, this, this is really something to look at. something very painful. It's a place that needs a lot of compassion, a lot of care. And it's said that judgment as it relates to the conceit of I am is a fetter that does not completely disappear until there is full awakening. In hearing that, too, it tells me that this fetter, this conceit of I am, this form of judging mind, may be around for a while. So it's really worth it to find a healthy way of relating. I suspect it gets more refined in how it appears, but that it keeps appearing. We need to find the underpinnings. In hearing that, it helped me to be less harsh in seeing 
it's arising in the mind stream. More patient. The Buddha said there was three kinds of conceit. The first kind of conceit is that of superiority, where there's the belief that one is better than. There is this feeling of self-exaltation. We might notice it here on retreat when we've been sitting, sitting in the meditation hall. And then someone else moves, but we're sitting very still. We are better than them. We might experience it when we're in the food line and the person before us is filling up their plate and we are practicing restraint. We might experience this if we undertake eight precepts and some of our fellow yogis are only on five precepts. We are better than them. At one point in my practice, I started to notice that there was a queenly judging and started to see it was the superior form of conceit. It's where there's an arrogance, pride, haughtiness, loftiness, an inflammation of identity, an inflated sense of self. There was a time in my own practice where there was this queenly voice, there was a righteous voice. And then, you know, at some point there came a real sense of humor in seeing this. And each time it was seen would come the phrase, just another place to be right. I'd like to share a teaching from Patro Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master. This comes from his uh, book, Words of My Perfect Teacher. He says, of all the negative emotions, Pride and jealousy are the most difficult to recognize. Therefore, examine your mind minutely. Any feeling that there is something even the least bit special about your own qualities, whether worldly or spiritual, will make you blind to your own faults and unaware of others' good qualities. So renounce pride. Noticing this superior judge, when it arises in our experience. Because we find that with this sense of inflammation, it's really a very fragile place of happiness, a very fragile sense of any self-worth. In one moment of comparing, there may be this inflammation, and in the next moment, we may not measure up so well. We find that if we are prone to 
feeling superior. But it takes a lot of work to continually bolster this sense of self up. It becomes really tiring. I'd like to share a Tibetan story that expresses something of the danger of identifying with an inflated sense of self. There was once a very proud and aggressive lion. He thought he was the most powerful beast in the world. And then one day a mouse came and told him teasingly, you know, there is another lion much stronger and more fierce than you are. And the lion immediately wanted to find his rival, thinking he would challenge him to a fight, win, and become renowned as the most ferocious lion in the land. And the lion asked the whereabouts of his foe, and the little mouse led him to a very deep well. He pointed down and said, The other lion is down there. Just look. And the lion looked into the well, and sure enough, he saw the face of a lion glaring up at him from the bottom. And the lion roared at it. And the second echoed in reply. And the first lion became so angry that he leapt straight down into the face of his enemy. And he drowned. This sense of superiority in the world creates a lot of pain a lot of suffering. It's not a healthy way to live. The second form of conceit being that of inferiority, where we compare and feel less than, whether it's comparing ourselves to here on retreat, our fellow yogis, and feeling like we're not as good as. I remember one retreat, you know, I was practicing with a Burmese teacher, and you know, you heard the report of the person in front of you. The person in front of me was what I called a good yogi, and had what seemed impeccable practice. And then every time I heard her report, there was this judging mind, this sense of inferiority, of being worthless, not good enough. And it was a downward spiral that was so painful. Sometimes our sense of inferiority comes when we have ideals about practice, beliefs about how our practice should be, and we fall short. We don't live up to these ideals, these ideas, these assumptions that we have. That we have a sense of being imperfect, and we suffer immeasurably. We can move into great states of shame, embarrassment, It's prevalent in our culture to be really self-judgmental.
judgmental, this harsh critic, not feeling good enough, unworthy. And it's such immense suffering. If we can let ourselves feel the pain of that inferiority, our hearts can't help but open with compassion. It's not a place that we want to stand in reference to I am. But we believe it. We think it's true. There's identification. And this is suffering. So when this sense of inferiority is there, looking, feeling, don't believe it, but feel it. See if you can see it in its nature to know this is a construction of mind. It's arising out of past conditioning. Who knows where those voices came from, that we aren't good enough, we're not worthy. But they're not true. It's not helpful to live from this place. (coughs) Excuse me. I was recently at a retreat with Minja Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. He's one of my teachers. And he said something that really touched me. He said, it's inappropriate to disparage and put ourselves down. This is a precious human birth. It's inappropriate to believe in this perception that we are worthless inappropriate, not helpful, not wise, and not true. Can we be there to see it is not true? So looking into the conceit of being inferior, not good enough, less than. The third form of conceit is that of being equal to. When I first heard of this as being a form of conceit, I was puzzled. What would be meant by this? One of the things that came to mind is even when we are comparing and being equal to, there is one, the comparing, and there is the I am. So this mistaken notion of I am in separation to the world. 
when I pondered it more, I also had a sense of how there can be mistaken notions within equality. Equanimity practice helps us to be able to open to all beings without being partial, to be inclusive. But it doesn't mean that all beings are the same. And often with equality, we can have a struggle with allowing for differences. And it will disempower the equality. I'd like to give an example of this, which comes from uh, something that happens, is common in Australia. And it's called the tall poppy syndrome. In order to understand this, uh, to recognize that Australia in its modern evolution was settled by English peasants and convicts. And these were people whom had been looked down upon by others in their lives. And settling in this new country, they didn't want others to be superior to them. So the syndrome happened that as soon as one person started to rise up or stand out, be different than others, they were cut down. And so there came this tall poppy syndrome, which doesn't allow people from the sense of equality to develop their own unique capacities. And there can be really neutral hierarchies in life that are based on function and not worth. But when it's confused, we base it on worth. When we look at a tree, a tree is composed of many parts. It has roots in the ground. It has a trunk, sap. It has leaves. These leaves are in the daylight and the roots are underground. Do you think that the roots are jealous of the leaves in the sunlight? There is just a natural hierarchy that is based on function. I've lived for many years in spiritual community, and I've seen how this unwise relationship to equality, being equal, can cause suffering that there can be this sense in a spiritual community that we are all equal, which is true on one level. We are all equal, but there will be differences. So when, say, the roof leaks, a tendency to want to give people an equal opinion as to how it should be dealt with. So if someone's a cook, Another person's a receptionist, and another person's a carpenter. They could all have very different takes on what's to be done. And yet, there's an obvious 
person who would probably have the skills most required. What I've also seen living in community is that a sense of equality can set up a scorecard of who gets all the goodies, that can set up a sense of competitiveness and rivalry. So just even noticing where the conceit of being equal comes in, both for where it, it doesn't allow for differences and for where it is simply the conceit of being separate. I am. That is unhelpful. So the three forms of conceit, that of being superior, that of being inferior, and that of being equal, all based in the conceit of I am, all a source of suffering. The judging mind often gets confused with discernment because in our lives we will find it necessary to make decisions based upon value, which can be as simple as what kind of milk we're going to buy, what career choices we might make in our lives, whether we buy a house, rent a house. And we need to be able to see the difference between when this is a judgment that's based in self and is unhelpful and confused, and when it's simply the discerning faculty in the mind. For example, Maybe we are going to buy a house. Maybe the house that we're going to purchase is an older house, a small house. This is what will allow us to buy a house without being burdened by a huge mortgage. If our sense of self-worth is tied in with this, it might be that, oh, I can only buy the small, run-down house. I'm a failure. I'm not able to provide well for myself. And it will be suffering. And yet, you know, on a very practical level, it may be what will best support this body-mind in life. If we learn to recognize this judging mind in our practice, we can begin to see where these unhealthy, unhelpful perceptions are tied in. We can begin to disidentify with this judging mind. And it helps bring a spaciousness to our lives so that in our daily lives, 
we can let the voice of wise discernment be there. So working with the judging mind, letting it be conscious, letting it be known, letting it be received by awareness. When it can be received, it can be known for what it is, can be seen as a thought, can be known as judging mind without being tied into prescribing a value to who we are. Many times we can't do this. There's aversion to this judging mind, not wanting it to be there having to recognize this aversion, this pushing away, wanting to distance, wanting to deny, including this in our experience. When the judging mind is present, and it's sticky, it's not just seen as another arising appearance in the mind, which is what it is. You know, it's just like any other experience. It will arise, be known, and pass away when we aren't clinging to it. But when that identification comes, looking to see what's being identified with in this moment. It might be a thought, some kind of belief, a view. It might be the sense of puffing up the self-image or deflating. And sometimes we get comfortable in a sense of inferiority because we collapse in our resignation. Seeing where that identification is and not being judgmental in it because this too is just another appearance in the mind but looking to see the underpinning. Where's the glue, the stickiness? And letting it be okay. So recognizing, accepting, being interested in this experience. I mean, we're really working with the last fetter to go, the conceit of I am. It needs a steady mind. It needs kindness, patience, perseverance. Not demanding that it go away, but looking to understanding this. Because this is where freedom lies. This has been conditioned, and because it's been conditioned, 
it can be deconditioned through wise attention, not feeding, and looking at how we fuel this judging mind, how we give it fodder through the attachment, identification. We need to be forgiving as we get caught in it over and over again. Our practice here, really a place we can investigate this, come to know it, develop a wise relationship. There can be many psychological layers to judgment, the judging mind. Things that we might explore through therapy. But here we can really look at this judging mind on the level of tamas, on the level of truth. That it is a phenomena arising due to certain conditions. As the conditions change, it disappears. It's been conditioned by habits, patterns that are based upon perception, thought formations, and that this is insubstantial in its nature. There's no substance. For those of you who were here last week, you might remember that I touched upon, I was speaking about anatta, or the impersonal, insubstantial, not-self nature of experience. And in doing so, I talked about how the investigation of the five aggregates that the Buddha spoke about, and uh, just to refresh everyone's memories on what the five aggregates are, the five aggregates are what comprises our experience, being that of material form, viewing, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. And these are aspects of experience that are always arising and passing and coming, you know, coming up together. And when they arise, what we identify with is some aspect of these experiences. And out of that identification comes this sense of I am, this conceit of I am. And the Buddha said that if we really want to, and this is paraphrasing, if we really want to get to the underpinnings, the slightest conceit of I am, we can do so by the exploration of these five aggregates. Because when there is this identification, this sense of conceit arises. And so there can be really simple ways of being with our experience through just recognizing in a moment is there identification with a perception? Something being perceived in the mind, giving rise to this judging, comparing, 
evaluation? Is it volitional formation that is arising in this mind? This um, conditioning agent in the mind? Is this being identified with? Just looking in our experience to see where the I am arises. So in our practice, working with very blatant forms of the judging mind, where we are you know, evaluating, judging, comparing the sense of self to others, and also just the subtlest form of I am. It's all judging mind, comparing mind, all needing investigation. As we let go of the judging mind, no longer identify with it, it's the letting go of the conceit of I am. Finding an unburdened life. I'd like to close with a Zen poem from Zenrin Kushu from the 17th century. The morning glory which blooms for an hour differs not at heart from the giant pine which lives for a thousand years. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings be free from the harshness of the judging mind and the conceit of I am.
closing with the chanting of sharing of blessings. <laughs> <laughs>